This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. On the show, you'll hear from leading Australian business owners as they share the lessons they've learned building their companies. You'll learn from their successes, as well as some of the challenges they've faced along the way. We also talk to experts from a range of fields who share specialised techniques you can use to improve your business. I'm your host, Savan Tuna, and I'm a director at Alexander Spencer, and I'm really passionate about helping Australian businesses succeed. Today on the show, we are speaking to Malcolm Ebb, the founder and managing director of Fee Synergy. Fee Synergy is Australasia's leading provider of automated data management software and finance solutions to the accounting and legal sectors. In today's episode, you'll hear about how to implement best practice data management processes in your business. From credit checks to tax invoices, trade terms and payment methods, you'll learn about the mistakes business owners make when it comes to data management. Let's jump in. Malcolm, thank you for joining us today. Pleasure, Savar. So today we want to obviously talk about collections, data management, and obviously how that impacts businesses in today's environment. But before we do that, Malcolm, you have an extensive professional background. I've known you for a long time. Do you want to tell us about your professional journey? Sure. I'll give you a short version, Savar. <laughs> Look, I've been around the accounting legal scene for a long time, but started life actually in Sydney. So I've been in beautiful Melbourne since 1995. That'd be the year that the Carlton won, I think, the grand final. But my first 20 years of my life was spent in the insurance industry, the general insurance industry, actually. And when I came to Melbourne in 1995, I moved into the finance industry, working for a company that was acquired by G Capital. And uh, that's where I actually met my business partner, Mickey Simonovsky, who you know, Savan. I actually recruited him into G, which was really nice. But at that time, we were involved in the insurance premium funding industry, which a lot of businesses use that sort of facility through their insurance brokers. But we developed a new product at that stage for the funding of accounting and legal fees. And in fact, your company, of course, uses our services for that effect. But back in, so that was about 2000, I think. And then I left to join a, a software company. I was asked to come and run a software company in the apparel and human resource space. I knew nothing about software, but the board said, perfect, you, you know how to run a business. So I did that for a few years. At that stage, Mickey was still at GE and GE decided that we'd withdraw from the market, the professional fee finance product that we had. I spent six months of my life developing that. I was very passionate about it. At that stage, it was about 2005, Mickey and I got together and said, why don't we start up our own finance company to specialise in that type of finance? I mean, after all, Savan, how hard could it be to set up a finance company? <laughs> no, not <laughs> hard at all. <laughs> yes, so naivety, but we had a great concept. We were passionate about it. So we shook hands, said, yep, let's go and start a business to do that. Then the fun started. So the fun being, well, you've got a finance company, you need to have access to a lot of money. So we did the rounds of all the banks, I think for 18 months, two years. They all said politely, love the idea, but uh, come back to us in three years when the business is operating and successful. After a couple of years of, of I guess, wearing out shoe leather down Collins Street, we pooled our resources and managed to get our finance business out of the ground. And uh, so it was 2007. I left my job at the software company at that stage to set up the, the company. So that was a big move. And here we are, what's that, 14 years later, still going, still going strong. But the finance company was the first part that we set up and then 
we've moved, I guess the word these days is pivot. It seems to be a pandemic term, pivot. But in uh, about 2000 and would be 15, 16, we decided to to move into the software industry so to support our finance offerings, but more importantly to support our accounting and legal firm clients with data management solutions because at that stage we'd done, you know, we, we, we'd looked at and couldn't find any data management platforms that would act, be suitable for accounting and legal firms. So we decided to build our own. Again, how hard could it be, Savant, to start up a software company? No, not, <laughs> not hard at all. I haven't done one myself, but I'm sure it wasn't too difficult, Malcolm. Yeah, no, it's a piece <laughs> of cake, Savant. But no, look, we did have a background in software, so it gave us the confidence to, I guess, embark on that journey. And uh, we knew how to hire good programmers and analysts and all the sort of things that you need in a software company. And it's great being interviewed by you, Savant, today because you know that your firm was the first to use the beta version of our data management platform called Fee Synergy Collect. And of course, that platform is used by hundreds of accounting and legal firms across Australia and New Zealand today. And uh, many of your clients, who I presume will be listening to this podcast, would have seen the Fee Synergy name around your practice for probably five or six years, so I suspect now, so far. Yeah, no, definitely. We, we're really excited to, to be the beta test for the Fee Synergy Collect platform. Definitely changed our collections process we did it at a very ad hoc manner when we took on fee synergy collect and the data management system it definitely changed our collections and our data days Mm -hmm. so that's why we're here and as obviously you know cash flow is the lifeline of businesses today so to start off with what is the first thing a small business needs to do to implement best practice data management processes Yeah, look, it's a good question. In fact, one that every business should be asking itself as soon as they open the doors for business, frankly, because cash is king. If you haven't got cash flow, you haven't got a business, frankly. Every business, no matter how small, uh, needs to have a documented credit management policy. Absolutely. And it needs to be understood by all members of the team, staff, directors, partners, whatever it might be. And it needs to be applied consistently to the process, so to the clients. The best way to implement such a you know, policy is to have it built into your business systems. So no matter what accounting package you're using, has it got the capacity to provide a reminder service or something, something to help you manage your debtors? If it does, absolutely jump on that. But the key thing, as I say, is to know what your credit policy is and to be consistent in an application when talking to clients. Just for the listeners that aren't familiar with what a documented credit policy is, what are the things that go in there? It starts with what your trading terms are. So in the industries that we tend to work with, which in the professional services, most firms will have a 14-day trading term. So they send out the invoice and they want to get paid within 14 days. That's fine. It needs to be clearly spelt out on the invoice so the client knows. Uh, The first thing you do when you get an invoice from anyone is look at uh, how much it is and then look at when it's due by. So that uh, having that displayed very clearly on an invoice is a good starting point. So the clients know straight up what the expectation is. As far as other things, I think don't be afraid to talk to your clients about paying your bill. You know, if you've done a good job and you know, you've, you've delivered the service or the product, they know they've got to pay for it. So don't be afraid to have the discussion. I think for all small business owners, it's out of their comfort zone asking clients to pay. So even the clients of yours... They've got clients, so they're going through the same, you know, thought process. But uh, don't be shy about it. That would be my one, one recommendation. 
What I wanted to talk about next is obviously you've got a documented credit process. Is there a requirement to do sort of credit checks on your clients when you first take him on? Is that a standard process or one that you recommend? Yeah. Look, uh, it depends on what industry you're in, what product or services your company is offering, but certainly credit checks, they can take many forms. You're not required to do it, of course, but if you don't do some form of uh, credit checking, and I'll come to what that might look like in a minute, then you're taking a risk, maybe an unnecessary risk. And yeah, depending on the size and nature of the transactions, how well you know the client, then that would dictate what sort of credit checking you do. So they're pretty basic sort of things that can be done. But you know, check, check that they're actually paying their bills on time. But credit bureaus is the other thing that if you've got large transactions, and certainly in some industries where you do a lot of work for a client before you bill them and get paid, and I guess I'm looking at use of our accountants and, and lawyers typically do that, yeah, the minute you start doing work for a business or, or a client, you're actually providing them with credit, okay? So you've got to know, are they credit worthy to start with and how much you're prepared to do before you insist on payment and, and get payment? So if they're larger amounts, and it's up to you to determine what you would view as a large amount. Using a credit bureau like Equifax, which we use in our finance business, just makes perfect sense because you can see straight away whether that client, whether they're credit worthy, we see their credit score, you can see how, how long it takes them to pay their suppliers, what their trading history is, whether they've been directors of failed companies, all the sort of stuff that you would expect to see in a bureau report. Very useful for, for giving you, the, I guess, the comfort to know how much credit you're prepared to pay, provide to that, that client before you embark on the work. And of course, those reports cost a bit of money, but it's, it's good insurance. Uh, and what, what, what are the costs, roughly? They can yeah. vary. I mean, with the credit bureaus like Equifax, you typically will take up a subscription or you can buy reports one at a time on an ad hoc basis. And depending on how deep you want to go in the information, they could range from as little as, I don't know, 10 or $15 up to $100. It just depends on how deep you want to go into the client's credit history. So you would match that maybe towards the value of the work you're doing. Yeah. Okay. But also if you're providing services to an industry that maybe is deemed to be a bit higher risk than some others. In the world we live in now, you've got access to a lot of information. They're free. Yeah. One of them is called social media. So we've be got, you know, our finance business, we'll do ASIC searches, make sure the company's registered, all that sort of stuff. Go on to Google, you know, their website, go on to the client's website and, and get a feel for what their business is all about, who the people are. So if you don't know them, all these sort of things are just useful to give you, a, I guess, a bit more insight into your client. And if they've got a premises, trucking shop, you know, workshop or whatever it might be, actually go and visit them. Does it look nice and clean and well-ordered? Is it been maintained? All those sort of one percenters, as we would call them, add up to a good picture of, you know, the client. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, great advice. I, I, I get a lot of calls from clients when they, you know, get a client for the first time and it's a large contract and, and uh, you know, it could be a listed <laughs> company or even a large medium-sized company and, and those companies sort of try to dictate terms on how they want to pay because they seem to be bigger and clients ring me and say, you know, I really want to win this job but I'm nervous around whether I'm going to get paid. So you've given some awesome tips around the Equifax and doing the credit checks, visiting, and it really understanding the management team and so on to make sure that you don't get, yep. you know. Well, I think you raise a good point there. Our listed companies obviously have got all access to their annual reports and things like that. So you can actually see what their financial performance is. But 
when you look at these reports, read between the lines as well. And your accountant's very good at helping you read between the lines of financials. <clears throat> but just because they're big doesn't mean they're going to pay your bill. Yeah. Uh, we, yeah. So, so I think a lot of people do get carried away. So, oh, it's a big company and therefore we're prepared to give them, you know, whatever they want. But, you know, in the world of finance and things like that, there's a thing called concentration risk. So if you've got one big client and, you know, and a few small ones, but if you've got one big client makes up a fair chunk of your revenue, you need to be very careful about how you engage with that client, make sure that they're going to be able to pay for the services you provide. So I wanted to talk a little bit about tax invoicing and the actual invoice that the, the customer receives from the supplier, obviously. What are best practice tax invoice strategies that you've seen or you believe customers should do? Well, I think the basics, and I mentioned before, having a payment due date, what I call a clean-looking invoice, you see some invoices, we see lots of them, and they're just messy. And you think, well, how's the client going to read that? And, you know, so have a really clean invoice that spells out very clearly the date of issue. Obviously, you've got to have your ABN and all that sort of stuff. There's compliance issues around tax invoices, as you know. But also, yeah, make it very clear when the payment's due by, how much it's for, and then the, a narration of, of some sort that actually is going to make sense to the client on the invoice, yeah, the work, what that invoice is for. So they can say, yeah, I remember that. That's easy. So I think it's just clarity of, of the invoice and nice clean layout would be one of the key things I would recommend. But yeah, as you would know in your own business, Savan, these days you can have yeah, URL or links to payment gateways to make credit card payments. Yeah, you should display all the payment options for the client actually on the invoice in, the, in what was the old remits advice area. If you are a business that takes credit card payments, you need to be aware of some regulations around what's called PCI, DSS compliance, which is the global standard for for handling client credit card information. There's very strict rules around that. So if your invoice has got the traditional boxes and dashes for collecting credit card information, you know, fill it out, post it back to us or fax it back to us, you need to have a good look at that because that is not going to help you become a PCI compliant business. So... They're probably the key things, Savan, that I would recommend companies look at. Fantastic. And that kind of leads into perfectly to my next question around payment methods. There are many options. You know, we have BPAY, EFT, you touched on credit cards. Is there a particular method of payment that works or do you just need to provide all options for, for clients? Yeah, we, again, depends on the type of business you're in. But I guess credit management or getting you know, cash collections 101 is give the client as many options as, as, as you can to enable them to pay. So if you know, if it's credit card, BPAY, EFT, doesn't matter what it is, try and give them as many options as, as you can to enable them to pay your bill. Now, one of the things that we've seen significant growth in has been use of debit cards. And I think one of the things that people need to be aware of is there are rules around credit card payments about profiting from merchant fees that the banks charge. So credit cards attract a slightly higher merchant fee than a debit card. So if you are offering, well, you should be collecting both credit card and debit card, making it optional. If you are passing on a surcharge to the client, just be careful that you're not profiting from it. And it's a very easy thing to work out. You just look at the bank statements uh, for your merchant statements and you'll see exactly how much your bank is charging you for credit card and debit card payments. And so that's just something to be wary of. It's something that's probably not well understood, but it's been in legislation for a long time. So, 
And what's the biggest mistake that business owners make when it comes to data management? <laughs> the biggest mistake? Probably being too soft on their clients would be the, one of the major ones. But I think that the, most business owners don't like chasing clients' payment. They just send out the invoice and hope the client does the right thing and pays. But I think you know, being soft on clients, cutting them too much, you know, giving them extra time to pay, not having a consistent approach to the way you follow up debtors. A lot of uh, businesses give the collection process to unskilled staff. So it might be a junior staff member who's got no skills around negotiating payments or whatever, and yet the, the owner of the business, you know, delegates that responsibility or abrogates, I suppose is more appropriate, to people who maybe haven't got the right skill level to to negotiate payments with clients. So that's that's a big mistake that, that a lot of businesses make. The next section I want to touch on is is a little bit more into the credit card section and, mm. and even talk a little bit about direct debits. Direct debits, credit card charges are being used more and more often. You mentioned obviously it is a good strategy for collections. Mm. Can you talk more about the PSI and the legislation around the credit cards just to so that we get a bit more of an understanding yeah. of that? So I think, uh, as I was saying earlier, there are rules around holding or collecting client credit card information. So... If you are collecting, if, you, if you've if got an FPOS terminal or something like that, where you swipe in the card, that's called a card present transaction. So there's no, there should be no issue around you having that client credit card information. You don't need it. But if, you, if you're taking payments off from a client over the phone or through your website or something like that, you've got to make sure that whatever you're doing, the card details are not stored anywhere. Okay, that the best is in fact what your firm's got where it's a bank-to-bank. So the client's putting their credit card information in an Alexander Spencer uh, payment gateway on the website. That information is passing straight through to, in this case, Westpac Bank. So no one's touching it. You don't have access to the number, not being stored or saved anywhere. So just being careful around that is very important and there are simple ways to overcome that in this day and age. So obviously direct debits are a strategy that business owners can apply for either services rendered or, you know, being able to charge a client for an amount that was owing previously. What are the rules around direct debits and how do you go about administering that? Look, direct debits for, for many businesses can be a fantastic addition to their, I guess, payment offerings to clients. But there are certain rules around it. The, the direct debits are, I guess, administered by the banks through a network, the payments network, I think it's called. But there's a thing called the BEX compliance, which is bulk electronic clearing system, which controls or sets the standards for what you're required to do with direct debit forms. In the least, the forms that you issue to your client to be signed for a direct debit have to be in a prescribed format. There's certain things they must contain and you know, the client signing it should be the one who's authorised for that money to be drawn from the account. So there are many of these sort of facilities around, but there are certain things that are not negotiable. But the last thing you want is to be drawing money from a client's bank account or credit card and then one day get a chargeback. And I think that that term is one that you'll hear. Chargebacks effectively is where the person who has uh, had the money coming out of it, particularly a credit card, I should say, says, well, hang on, I don't think that's right. I've been charged incorrectly. And they can challenge that payment simply by going back to their own bank, who will then take it up with the, the bank that, that the merchant is with. And in Alexander Spencer's part, the, the, the merchant is Alexander Spencer. So, and I think the Westpac is your bank bank for that. So Westpac will come back and say, well, we've been 
we've received a charge back from this client's bank, you know, you've got to now produce within three days the signed direct debit authority. And if you can't or it's not in the prescribed form or it wasn't signed by the right person or wasn't in the right legal entity, you know what? You might have that money taken off you again. And these can go back many years. The rules actually protect particularly consumers for many years. I think seven years you, they can go back and challenge. But look, they happen from time to time. In, our, in the fee synergy world, we've got thousands of businesses on direct debit of all types and we get chargebacks, I don't know, on, on average probably one or two a month maybe. We've never lost one because all our direct debit authorities are in the prescribed format and they are all been signed properly and there's no dispute over what the, what the services were for. And in our case, it's obviously for accounting and legal fees. So we've never lost one in 14 years at chargeback. I've seen vendors do this in some industries, but what is your view on businesses providing customer discounts for payments made by a particular date or early? Discounts, again, it comes back to what business you're in as to whether these discounts are uh, worthwhile or not. And I think from from my perspective, a discount it might be 5%. If you pay by a certain date, you'll get 5% off, right? Now, if you're going to do that, that's, yeah. fine, that's fine. But just be prepared for the clients who then still pay you late and take off the 5%. Because if you're prepared to take 5% discount then, that's what human nature. They say, oh, 5%, I'll just take it off the off the bill anyway, even though I'm paying three months later. So if you are offering discounts, you need to be really rigid about the way you apply them and make it clear to the client. You know, don't be paying me late because that 5% is only on the table for the, as, as stated on the tax invoice or whatever you're providing. So look, they're a tricky one. They work often in certain industries where people are used to that, but I certainly in, in the industries we tend to work with, particularly in accounting legal, I recommend our clients not to be offering discounts, okay? Yeah. But it's up to the firm to decide whether it's, you know, in there, you know, something they're prepared to do. But, yeah, but just as I say, just be prepared for the client to take the discount off anyway, even <laughs> if they pay you late. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's a good tip. Conversely, to discourage late payment, fees for late payment, actually adding a fee, I haven't seen that too often these days, but yeah. is that a strategy that you have seen or you recommend? Because a strategy I've seen many times over the last 30 years, but I've never seen any really work effectively. My view of the world, and these are, again, my views, and it comes down to what business you're in. If you if you have on your invoice, late payment will attract an interest component or a fee, or you know, that's a threat to your client. That's the way I view it. You're really threatening the client to say, well, if you don't pay by this date, things are going to happen. I don't know that that sends the right message to clients. I'm certainly in a professional environment. I don't think it does. But also what you really want is if a client is struggling, not to be penalising, you actually want to be engaging with them and negotiating something that works for both of you. So, you know, I have a view about it. I've I've never seen anyone actually then apply it, you know. So so why have it on there? If you're not going to do it, don't put it on your invoice. Something that's worked for a lot of our clients is regular reminders and having a systematic approach that is backed by technology, Fee Synergy Collect, that we use powers our regular reminders. So I want to talk a little bit about that. Can you broadly just uh, give us some, what are the best practice regular reminders that you would encourage small business to apply in there? Absolutely. I think clearly one of the main reasons businesses don't get paid as quickly as they would like is because 
they don't remind their clients to pay their bills. Yeah, crazy as it may sound. They send out the original invoice, it's 14 days, 21 days, 7 days, whatever it is. So when a client gets the invoice, they say, oh, good, I've got 7 days to pay that or 14. They just leave it sitting in their computer or print it out and put it in the in-tray or whatever it is. But if you don't remind them to pay, then they don't or they just forget. Most people, businesses don't like to pay ahead of time. So if they've got 14 days to pay, you know what, I'm going to take that 14 days. But then uh, they forget about it or they say, well, I'll just wait till Savan, you know, rings me up and reminds me. But if you don't send reminders, then you will have slow paying clients. There's no doubt about it. So I think the way, our best practice in the world we live in, dealing with accountants and, and lawyers and their clients, our small businesses, is to send out a reminder either you know, two or three days before the invoice is due or maybe on the day that the invoice is due. Friendly reminder to say, send that invoice and hopefully that, that'll prompt the client to pay. If you don't get payment, then you need to send out another reminder. We recommend every week that you be sending out reminders up to a point. So in, in the system you're using, Savan, that you, you mentioned, obviously the fee you collect, data management platform, it's all automated. So if you have got, if you're a small business and you've got access to an automated reminder system, absolutely do it. But it comes a time in that credit cycle where you might have sent two or three reminders to the client and, and the client still hasn't paid that you need to get on the phone. And, you know, don't just keep sending out reminder after reminder, friendly emails or you know, SMS, I've viewed about SMS messages as well. They work in some industries, but they're, they're not really ideal for professional services, for example. Someone eventually is going to need to get on the phone, talk to the client and find out why they're not paying. Now, short of them being unhappy with you or, or the goods that they've got are no good or whatever, you want to have that discussion with them sooner rather than later. You'd rather know that, you know, quickly rather than let it drag out for 30, 60, 90 days before you then find out, oh, okay, I didn't realise that. So whilst we heavily automate the process, sometimes nothing's better than a human on the end of the phone and there's no getting around that. So, But we do know that through hundreds of firms that we work with, the reminders, you know, reminder one, two, three, automated, they get a result. 80% of the cash will come in, okay, but through that, purely through the reminder process and then the other 10 15 20 percent where they're a bit slow you, you talk to them and find out why they're slow and they might need a payment arrangement and they say savan it's two thousand dollars can i pay a thousand next week and then a thousand you know the following month so yeah that's fine at least i know yeah so those sort of conversations are need to be had but yeah automated reminders are absolutely the way to go if you've got access to the technology so there'll be obviously some debtors that are you might not get anywhere with yeah so the next sort of topics I want to talk about is what do we do from a legal action? What grounds do we have in that space? So when should a business owner refer a debt to a debt collector or a lawyer? What are the next steps? Yeah, look, it's a tricky one. And again, for a lot of businesses that they think, oh, they'll pay, they live in hope. A lot of people live in hope that the client's going to magically come up with this money and pay them. But if, you, if you're not communicating with them throughout that one month, two month, three month period or whatever it might take, you, then you sort of don't know where, where you sit. But ultimately, if you decide, no, look, I've, I've had enough, that client owes me $5,000, that's hurting me, there's no good reason for it. You, you've got two, two decisions. You either 
you know, look at, I guess, the two, the two main ways of looking at a, a debt collecting agency. A mercantile agency is the term that it's an old term that they've got to have mercantile agents licence to do that. And the other one would be what I call going legal, you know, going to a legal firm to, to help you recover that money. So the two are valid options, but it depends on, again, your business, the size of the transactions, how many debts are outstanding, all that sort of thing. So if you've got a lot of small value invoices that you're trying to chase, then I would recommend looking at probably a debt collection agency for those because they're geared up with systems to to do bulk chasing of money. They will typically charge a success fee for that. It's up to you to negotiate something with that agency, but potentially anything up to 25% of whatever they recover that they that they will keep, which is fine if they get a good success. If you've got larger amounts outstanding and you're at a point where the relationship's finished with the client, I don't want them as a client anymore, they're just not good for my business, I want to go hard and get my money, my recommendation is always to go legal on those large ones. Find a friendly lawyer. Some specialise in debt recovery, so they've got good systems for doing that. Mostly they'll just charge flat fees for doing things. Like the first part of that might be, say, a letter of demand to the client, and those letters of demand can range from as little as you know $75 up to a few hundred dollars. But it comes down to how much the debt is. But if you go legal, there's a few things you need to be aware of, and that is have you followed a proper process about trying to get the money from the client? So if you decide you want to go legal, and it really it applies to, to a debt collection as well, but you know, the, the lawyer will say, well, you know, have you provided the goods and services? Have the client accepted them? And say, yes, yes, I have. And say, okay, have, have you evidence of, of invoicing them properly? And this is a, a trap for a lot of businesses that – when you issue a tax invoice to a client, make sure you've got the right legal entity on the tax invoice because if you ever need to rely on it in a court of law or whatever, the first thing to look at is, hang on, that's the wrong entity, so that's going to be problematic straight off the bat. So that's a tip for any business out there. Have you got evidence that you've tried to chase a client for money and if you've got systems and things like that, we, this is the dates we contacted them, all that sort of stuff, that's important. You need to show that you've actually been through a process without it getting a result. And you also need to show that you've tried to negotiate payment terms with them, okay? If they said, oh, look, can I pay over four instalments, 1000 1000 1000 Yeah, if you say no, I just want my four grand, that could be a problem as well because... You know, really, you're trying to negotiate an outcome which works for both parties. And if you are really recalcitrant on that, it's not going to be helpful in a, in a collection process. Often when chasing debts, you're actually looking to get a payment arrangement in place with the client anyway. So you may as well do it as a small business, as the owner of the business. So I think the things that you need to weigh up is how much is the debt, what's the commercial viability of, of running it is the company deregistered and you, you probably as an accountant Savan you would know you can't deregister a company in theory with ASIC if you've got outstanding debts but I'm sure it happens yeah <laughs> so, yeah <laughs> so, but that creates a problem then for the directors of that company if they deregister yeah so but I think talking to I mean most accountants would would be a good starting point for telling you you know well that's worth chasing or, or not but You've got really those two two options. The third option is uh, one I won't talk about on air. <laughs> Fair enough. Malcolm, we talked about tax invoices and the compliance requirements around tax invoices. What do business owners need to put on a tax invoice or an invoice for their services to be compliant? 
Sure. Well, there's some minimum requirements. The issuer of the invoice needs to have their ABN, the name of the business, ideally their, their address and contact details, and the word tax invoice if they're charging GST. So, and of course, uh, when you show the amount that is owed to the client, you need to break it up between the, the amount plus GST and then a total. So they're really the only requirements of a tax invoice. But additional to that, from a best practice perspective, we would recommend you have clearly a narration around the services and the goods being provided so the client is in no two minds as to what they are. But also very clearly show when the payment is expected by. And so a payment due date is the best way. I wouldn't say our trading terms are 21 days, so please pay. You know, when's that? That's confusing for a client. Having a, a due date for payment is, is another really good uh, tip and it, it's helpful for the client. So I think they're, they're sort of the tips, but clearly the thing that I see most, and I see a lot of invoices because we deal with a lot, you know, thousands of businesses, some of them just some are just confusing. You look at it and think, well, how's, how's my customer going to actually understand my invoice? So having a nice, clean invoice, easy to read, is there going to be no confusion for the client? That would be my biggest tip around invoices. Well, there you go. Well, I wanted to thank you for your time today. That was uh, very informative. I think we got a lot of takeaways from data management, collections and, and best practices. So thank you for joining us today, Malcolm. Absolute pleasure, Savar. This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. This podcast was produced by accountancy firm Alexander Spencer. At Alexander Spencer, we've been helping business owners realise their goals since 1952. And we play a pivotal role in developing, implementing and supervising the business goals and strategies of our clients. To find out how we can help your business succeed, head to our website, alexanderspencer.com.au. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Bottom Line, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Savan Tuna, and we'll be back next episode with more tips to help you transform your business. And that's The Bottom Line.